Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of Sad Times. Uh, before we get too deep into it, we do, of course, have to call out our sponsor, Fuck Cigarettes. Uh, as I like to say, and, and, you know, I talked to the CEO of Fuck Cigarettes. His name is Marvin. Marvin and I like to talk about lighting up a big fuck and just leaning back and blowing out like... So we're hoping that you at home are having a fuck cigarette yourself. Um, Jesus Christ, what was that noise? Okay. Uh, so before I introduce that laughing guy, um, just a reminder, uh, or for anybody who's never been here before to listen to Sad Times. Uh, Sad Times is a show we do where um, I have a guest on, and we talk about times in their life where they were sad, upset, anxious, um, in, you know, emotional in, in a lot of ways that... Uh, and we talk about how they reacted at that time. We talk about, um, you know, how those around them reacted, perhaps. Uh, and the goal here is not to fix the problems, you know, that somebody may have had or has. It, that's not it at all. It's about telling the story, uh, having the people tell their own story so that people out there who are listening, you know, might feel uh, a little less alone and say, oh, I, I've had that experience, et cetera. So that's kind of what Sad Times is. Thanks for stopping by. Today's going to be a little different because my guest is a little different. Uh, he's one of the dearest people to me in the world. His name is Aaron. And uh, hi, Aaron. How are you? I'm good, Kevin. Oh, thank you. That's wow. You have a very good radio voice. Does it sound good? Yeah, it sounds pretty good. good. Yes. Uh, so let's talk about Aaron. Wouldn't we've known each other what seventeen and a half years? I'd say May of two thousand five. We yeah. met, I believe. Yeah, we were doing a little summer theater. Yep. Do you want to tell anybody out there what it's like to do summer theater? <laughs> uh, it's like. Um if you never drank any water mm -hmm. or slept mm -hmm. uh, and then worked a lot in the sun mm -hmm. and also wanted to die. that That's actually, that that's about right. Um, no, yeah, so we, we did an outdoor drama and we had the best job in the fucking world once that show was open. It was a fine job. Uh, we had to be at the theater at like 6 p.m. every night, something yeah, like five that. five or six for call. Yeah, and then we'd do our little show yeah. and then we would go and... Get home about 11 probably. And drink until seven. Yeah, a.m. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I remember um, my buddy Mike Cole, who was uh, was on the show before. We had uh, we had bought black fabric mm. and we put it over our windows uh, in our bedroom so that we could sleep till like three or four, and there's oh, yeah. no sun. Now, I was eating two times a day during that, so we'd always two times a day. Yeah, what? we'd wake up at like three in the afternoon mm -hmm. and go get a big meal after cleaning up or whatever, mm -hmm. and then we'd do the show mm -hmm. and then I would drink until I wanted to fall over and then I would eat something and then I would go to bed, go to sleep. Those were my two meals. So the joke that you made and but that's also pretty true, right? It's not a very healthy way to live, at least summer stock theater. Do you think, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say some people probably can live healthily in that environment. Well, I, we couldn't, I was not one of those. Yes. People. Why do you think that? Uh, I mean, gosh, we were, I was 23, you were 22 when we met, I think. Yeah. Um, you're still in your thirties. Just barely. Yeah. Where are you from, Aaron? Albuquerque, New Mexico. New Mexico. Nuevo Mexico. And um, tell us about like um, your family, where you're from, growing up, all that good stuff. Oh, golly. Okay, so I was born uh, in my house in 1982. Really? Yep, yep, with a midwife Okay. on a waterbed. Mm -hmm. um, and my dad was a journeyman carpenter, and my mom uh, did like a lot of little stuff. She worked as like an assistant in a doctor's office before we were born and traveled around. My dad was in the military, so before we were born, uh, she kind of went where he went some on and off. What and, branch uh, was he in? He was in the Army. Okay. And uh, 
They got married in 71, didn't have any kids until 78. And that's your uh, that's my oldest older brother. sibling, yep. Uh-huh. And so they were married for a while before that. And uh, my dad was born in Albuquerque. And I don't know what necessarily took them back there. Uh, my dad got out of the military. They had been living in Colorado Springs, which is where Lucas was born. Oh, wow. Okay. And then moved back to Albuquerque. Me in 82, little brother in 85. Uh, pretty blue collar kind of thing. My mom started working as a temp for Qualmed, which was an, like an HMO insurance company. Uh, Qualmed? Qualmed. Yeah, I don't think they're around anymore. No, I, well, I think a lot of people had some qualms with it. Yeah, well, they probably got bought by somebody. Ass Ed? Perhaps. Yes. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, they were big into music. They met doing music in college. Neither one of them graduated, but they uh, they went for several years. But it was like um, musical theater, right? Yeah. Is that how they met? Well, they met doing West Side Story. They were oh. playing Tony and Maria. God damn. Believe it or not. I, yeah. I, I'll choose to believe it. I don't know yeah, why, why you not? would lie to me. I didn't. Yeah, Unless they okay. lied to me. Oh, yeah. That, then that's fucked up. Never know. Then that, that's the real reason we're on Sad <laughs> Times today. Uh, okay, so what's a journeyman carpenter? Is that just like kind of it's a like handyman? A union, union oh, he's carpenter. a union guy. Okay, that's what you go through so you can so you can be union. All right, so Albuquerque grew up there, and then we met in Ohio, Correct. which is quite the place. Uh, that Main summer, street. yeah, um, and that summer, the way that you and I really kind of bonded, we bonded more towards the end of summer, as I recall. We knew each other, and we would joke around during the show and all this good stuff, And but um, we were both dating people, yep. and uh, we kind of went, I remember we went on a, a double date to like an Amish yeah. uh, restaurant that was, whew, very was good. It like a huge tourist attraction, like Amish place, right? So mm-hmm. they had furniture, and they had all that kind of stuff, and then also this like ham dinner restaurant that they were real into the ham dinner of. Before I, I, I want to ask you something about, you've been a professional actor off and on for a long time. What is What are the reactions you get from people? Like if somebody says, what do you do like when you were an actor? And you said, I'm an actor. What was generally the reaction you would get? Oh, nobody treats it as a career, right? And maybe it wasn't, I don't know. At the yeah. time I thought it was, or mm-hmm. at least trying to be. Um, but generally it's like the, well, you're young, do, do it now while you're young kind of thing. You know, you travel all over, you meet different people, you go home, you tell people about it. They're like, that's so nice that you're doing this now when now, you can. Yes. And then you'll get old and you is, won't. Is it an implied like, excuse me, you'll grow out of this? And- uh, yeah, yeah. Or at least just, just the... Um, just the, you know, pr- probably pragmatically, it's you're unlikely to make a lasting living unless you're willing to make certain sacrifices. Yep. Uh, you know, ninety nine percent of actors never achieve any sort of actual fame. They just are working actors, which mm-hmm. is a very small percentage of actors. Right? People who call themselves actors most don't work with the sort of regularity you would need to say is a career. Um, yeah, I think you and I, I mean you did longer than I did, but. Uh, but we did – so I would get the reaction when I told people I'm an actor or I used to be an actor or whatever. Oh, wow. Mm. So glamorous. You know, that's kind of the thing. And it's yeah, like – so it's fun. It's, no, it's not. Well, yeah. I mean, of course it's fun. But it's also – you know, Aaron and I did a bunch of children's theater tours together. Now, those are a whole different type of sad times. Yeah. They, yeah. So what, what is it about that day in, day out? I mean, we'd have to get up at 4 well, a.m. Yeah, it's much harder than – People think, or certainly than I thought it would be, right? The hours are insane. So you 
you know, you might wake up at 4.30, meet at the van at 5.15 or whatever, drive two hours, spend an hour unloading the set, getting everything set up, do your hour-long show, pack up, drive another two hours, unload for another hour, do the show again. And oftentimes, you're not working with the very best of material that's mm-hmm. available, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so many theaters are doing what they can. You can't afford rights for something fancy. And there's probably not that much material out there for for that sort of thing that's really high quality, in, in my judgy opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have this mind-numbing uh, aspect that's much like any job that you have to go to day in and day out, although it's a little harder in that, uh, you know, it's easier to blend into the background at some jobs than it is, you know, if you're having a bad day. Yeah, uh, that's... Mm-hmm. You still got to find a way to turn it on, right? Uh, we only did one tour actually together. Is that one, correct? Yeah, one tour there. That and was there Frog was, and Toad. Yeah, that six was one of us. one higher quality shows I was in. It was a good so. show. It's a good musical. Um, I, I, I try, and I, I'm very fascinated to try to get across to people, yes, it's a job. Yes, uh, it has, I think you said it well there, that you can't really blend into the background, obviously, because there was just six of us in the show. And you do 10 shows a week, and you load that set in, load it out, and, you know, it's not the kid's fault, but usually kids are like, they don't, they're like, why am I here? What is this? And then you look out and the kids are, it's like a, a sea of yeah. a moving sea. Um, and, uh, it's a, uh, it's a very, uh, it's just a weird existence. And you stayed a lot of like super eights. We didn't go to many hotels cause we were, we did day trips. Like we were in saying. the one state. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, the first tour I was on was the true story of Pocahontas, a little gym. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we toured all over. We did like 11,000 miles or something on that tour. Yeah, and that was only in like three months, right? Yeah. Something like that? All the way down to the very tip of Florida. We drove across the Everglades and all the way back up north. What was the hardest part of doing that that tour? Well, we did that show 117 times. And in three months? In three months. It yeah. wasn't a great show. Uh-huh. Um, some of the people I was working with were difficult to work with as i'm sure i am at times as well but some some no. interesting challenges things like many actors uh some of the folks in there were dealing with their own mental health challenges and that made the tour itself more challenging there's five people on that show right five people yeah i was in the, the main stage version yeah, of were. that uh this was we lived in richmond but you were gone for like three weeks at a time you'd be oh, out even for more weeks. i think our longest really away was five weeks yeah yeah in, it, in hotels. Talk about how that is. And you it's not like you get your it's not like you get there and you get your own hotel room and you get to get away from everybody. No. Right? And you're in you said the van earlier. You're yeah. in one van. Right. With everything in it. Same people all day, all the time. All day. You go to meals together, you're in the hotel. My little brother was on the tour with me. Mm-hmm. So it was me and him and another gentleman sharing a hotel room all the time. Uh, that gentleman snored like nobody I've ever, ever heard in my whole life. And I come from what a long does it sound line like? of snores. I don't... It like, was it like a like, yelling snore? Like a, no, hey. it was like the roaring bear oh. snore, right? It was kind of... Oh. Kind of thing, right? And, and it, you guys couldn't wake him up, right? You'd be he like, didn't wake up. Like, you'd be like, hey, hey. Yeah. yeah. And then we had one big whole dramatic thing where I had kicked the bed because I was sleeping in a rollaway cot. At the foot of the and two other And you were definitely beds. the tallest of the three, if I remember yeah, correctly. he was a big yeah. man, so, yeah, you know, true. but, uh, and I had kicked the bed, probably on purpose, but as I recall, I was semi-asleep or whatever, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And we had to have a meeting with the tour manager, and we had to call back, and it's just like every little thing in that environment turns into a huge problem, right? It's just, 
And you said tour manager, and the tour manager is just one of the five of you. Correct. Right? Uh, So 117 times you're doing the show, and you're supposed to present it the way that it was directed, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, for example, if somebody goes to see, I don't know, The Lion King on Broadway, uh, it's a lot like the true story of Pocahontas. I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) It'll say directed by Julie Taymor. She directed it in the 90s. They're still doing her production of it, like how she directed it. Yeah. So well, the what, stage manager's in charge of making sure that yes, happens. Yes, exactly. Right? And that's what we were supposed to do on these shows. But you, I'll speak for myself. Like, I would be on the road, and if you don't get along with the people that you're touring with, that is, uh, you know, five weeks, I know, in the scheme of things, it's not very long, but my goodness. Well, it's a lot when, when everything is so the same. And, and I think what makes it extra difficult is... You know, you have life and life issues outside of that. And all you have is time to be super focused on whatever your problems are, right? The, the show the show is a problem. Whatever your other life problems are a problem. I was mm-hmm. going through like a weird long-distance relationship breakup thing at that time. And that was the same, uh, which same is, person I think you were. Also, is one of the one of the things that brought us closer together was I talked to you on the phone a lot yep. when I was out on that tour. Uh, plus, we lived together in the house when we were both when I was not still there. gone. We were at the house. And I was all heartbroken uh, about a gal, and uh, you were dealing with it. Um, and this is these were both the same people that we were dating uh, the summer of 2005 Correct. when we met. Correct. So I had, uh, my ex was like, oh, my God, I can't take you anymore. <laughs> uh, uh, and she, so she and I weren't even talking at that time. But you were in a relationship, but it, it was long distance, and you said it was strained? Uh, yeah, it was strained from the beginning, you know. In retrospect, it's pretty easy to see what was going on. But uh, at the time, you know, I think part, partially it's me. Mm-hmm. When, when I start a relationship, I tend to start it from the perspective of, like, I'm committed to this relationship, mm-hmm. you know, even if maybe I shouldn't be quite as committed. Yeah, you know, There's no justification. Not, not that the person isn't justified, but just... You know, it, it's okay to have relationships that aren't long term, right? Yeah, okay it, to enter a relationship and then have it go away rapidly. I I didn't learn that until later, and so every relationship I ever got in, I was like, "We're in this, baby." Yeah, and we're gonna, you know, go through all the hard stuff, even if it's like, you know, that never should have happened. And, uh, you won't even know that Blake was there. Cause I'll, uh, oh yeah, through the magic of the audio medium. Uh, what you don't hear at home, this is the way the magic works, is uh, everybody knows that we record in the area of Chicago. Uh, this is not, I did learn this just now, we're in a no-horn area, which is where I prefer to always be is in a no-horn area. Yeah. Because uh, we had to pause there because somebody used their fucking horn. And I believe it was you, Aaron. I didn't bring a horn. You didn't bring a horn? No. You always have a horn. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> That's not. People can't see that hateful look in your eyes. Yeah. Okay, so... If we can go back to um, we were talking about, so you had a a, a strain long. Do you want to talk any about that or? Oh uh, sure, yeah. Um, what um, so what was strained about it? Like what 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 was giving you the trouble? Let's say in that for everybody knows it's this is the fall of two thousand six. Uh yeah yeah. So I uh, I had convinced myself that I was deeply in love. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We had uh, a very interesting sexual relationship that in retrospect I now understand um, but uh, 
So can I ask what interesting means? Or <laughs> yeah, not? I'm trying to think how okay, I might. That's fair. That. Uh, it became obvious early on to me uh, that she was not really enjoying the sex. Understood. And I was thinking, well, what am I doing wrong? You know, mm -hmm. and I had this whole long insecurity thing where it was like, I guess I just don't know how to have sex. I hadn't had sex with anybody since my high school girlfriend, so it had been several years. All right, you're twenty. Uh, you turned twenty three at this right. point. Right, I dated her, my high school girlfriend, until I was like nineteen, maybe. So mm -hmm. it had been several years since I'd had any sex. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I had this crisis of confidence around that, right, because it was very clear that she wasn't having a good time, right. And she assured me that it wasn't me. See, I was going to ask if you tried to talk to oh, her yeah, about no, it. Oh, yeah, no, we talked about it. Um, it wasn't me, blah, 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 right? Now I know um, that this person uh, isn't attracted to men, or at least wasn't mm -hmm. attracted to men at the time. Uh, at the time. Um, and has since made some changes in their life to more accurately reflect what they've learned about themselves, I'm sure. I feel pretty um, – I don't have – I don't harbor any resentment now. There was a time when I felt like a lot of my time and emotional labor had been completely wasted because what turned out to be a, a different sexual orientation mm -hmm. was making me feel like I just didn't know how to have sex. Right? Yeah. You know, and um, I'm a pretty empathetic person, so it wasn't like I was angry at her or anything mm -hmm. like that, but it definitely was damaging over time. Um to and, you and or to affected her sexual to... relationships oh, after that for for a while until I got my groove back as it yeah. as it were. Yeah. Um, so that was weird, you know. And and to be on tour, right? So we'd yeah. had some. I, I didn't see her very often. She was still in school, right? Still in school. Yep. And of course, when you're in a long distance relationship, one of the things you do when you get together is get it on, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so just for everybody at home, that's uh, <laughs> sex. <laughs> And uh, so, you know, there was like that pressure there coupled with the fact that like, you know, it had been discussed that wasn't really quite what everybody had in mind. And, uh, you know, so that was weighing on me heavily while I was on tour. How often were you talking to her? Like, oh, did we, you guys talk well, so we were, we were like best friends, you know? So uh, you guys still had a really, it, it, oh, we had everything a great, else was really wonderful. Yeah, no, we had a good relationship. Yeah. You know, we talked a lot. Um, you know, leading up to tour, we were on the phone for hours a day and that yeah. kind of stuff. It was really kind of looking back. It feels more, it was probably a more juvenile relationship. If, if you follow my meaning, as far as like, it kind of sounds like something a high schooler would do or mm -hmm. something, right? Be on the phone for hours and we'd talk but about isn't our that, lives. And, you're right. You I, I think people would call it juvenile, but at the same time, I don't know. I, I, I like that type of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's where, where I was at, where, where she was at. And usually they just hang up on me after like an hour. <laughs> I doubt that. I've talked to you on the phone for many hours. Well, you're a, as you said, an empathetic person, yeah, that's true. uh, which is not to say anything, but basically you, you have, a you can take my shit, uh, as it were. But yeah, so we talked on the phone a lot. I do remember that Bye. because I was doing, we were, we lived in Richmond. I was doing an in-state tour. So it was one of these, Get up real fucking early, mm. uh, yeah, and then there's drive, a lot more driving on an drive like tour. four hours, six hours the whole day. Like all of your driving, you do the show twice. Again, you're in this 15 passenger van with four other people, along with your set, along with your 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 fucking luggage, all of it. 
right? And so let's say you go out and do the show, and um, I'm mad at um, you know person A because of something that happened in the show. Well, I don't get the chance to just be like, well, I got to go off by myself. No, nope, we got to pile back into this van, drive for another two hours, and then do the show again. Yeah, there's no cool off period. Yeah. In, in tour. Uh, it's very, and so you, I, I'm glad that I had those experiences because at least for me, especially when I did two person tours, uh, it, it taught me what an asshole I was. I think that's valuable information for all of us to, to get because we are all assholes. Yeah. And having Everybody to share hotel rooms with people that you do a show with, that you drive with all day and you do that for five weeks. It's you would be superhuman if you did not build up frustrations, Absolutely. resentments, whatever, whether they be like, I remember I was on a tour. I would just get mad. I would just look over at my tour partner and we would be driving eight hours a day and I would just look over and be mad. Yeah. It wasn't anybody's fault. I was just like, I'm so tired of this. Well, it all builds up. You yeah. Know. So you guys um, had a strained relationship. When did you guys end your relationship? I think, I think I want to say October of that year that I was on tour, and because I remember coming back from tour, and you played me that classic Beatles song, uh, for no one, for no one, great song. And I had a good long cry. Yeah, uh, the first time I heard that, I think that was the first time I ever heard that song. Um, it's and a great you know, song. I had the, dr the drama of youth within me as well. You know, so I, everything is emotionally heightened. And I was just like at a place where I was ready to feel a lot of feelings. I had a lot yeah. of emotions ready to go. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was, um, yeah. Your day breaks, yeah, mind aches. Paul, baby. <laughs> Great. So, uh, but that was October. Uh, I want to say, I, I actually had a thought. You said, well, you know, I was heightened emotional. I think one of my problems as a person, other than my face, is that... Uh, uh, sometimes the emotions, uh, uh, they're, they're overwhelming and they, you know, and so do you feel like that has receded for you or? Oh, well, well, I feel like it's, it's in my nature to want to be controlling, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of sort of ties into the experience I had when I lost my fingers in that, like, don't give it away. It's dude. really important Don't for give me it away. <laughs> to feel like I'm in control of, not in control of people, in control of myself in any situation. I'm, in, at least in theory, I want to believe that I am the master of how I'm feeling about the things that are happening around me. And, and I wasn't always very good at that. I've gotten better. Um, I think just just even thinking about the fact that I could choose within a certain boundary to feel something or not. At that time, I was full into the feeling, the fullness of every emotion I had. And, and I don't know, you know, to say it's a choice is probably not accurate. Um, you were maybe more um, uh, keen, not keen, keen? What am I, fucking French? I like keen. Um, I see keen a lot in New Zealand. Ah. That was fun. That's keen like, on it. Keen on it. Yeah, so uh, you'd be more... Accepting, or, I don't even know. I guess, the I guess word it's I just want. where I was. Yeah, know? you're just like I'm. I'm ready to go down here I and just feel this. Got all these feelings. Yeah, and I, I still remember one night in Richmond. You were um, not sober, uh, nor was I, and I was in the uh, the other room of this house. Now, this house that we lived in <laughs> uh, was a it was a huge. Well, not even huge. It was a it was a two story house. 
Uh, and part of it was literally sinking into the earth. Well, it was splitting. Right? It was like it the was back like, half was falling <sighs> off. Yeah, when down we the, middle. the the bathroom that was by our bedrooms in the basement when I lived in the basement, you sat on the toilet to use the restroom and <laughs> you reclined because the fucking house was falling into the earth. Yeah, the doors fell closed on one yeah, side of the hall yeah, and fell open yeah. on the other side of the hall. And Aaron and I, for a long time that I lived there, we had. Um, two rooms that used to be one room that they put a very thin wall in between. So we would talk to each other through the wall in the morning. Um, I had to go through your room to yeah, exit. To leave, yeah. Always waking me the fuck up. <laughs> you liked it. Uh, and so there's that. But anyway, one night I was with a friend in the like the, the front living room of the house. And then all of a sudden I hear Pavarotti. I, I don't know if I could have named it to have been Pavarotti. Then I hear Aaron just singing this beautiful tenor aria. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck? And I walk in and Aaron's, we had an island in that kitchen. And Aaron is, you were between the island and the cabinets. So you couldn't see you when you walked in. So I was like, what, where is this coming from? And I looked around and you're on the floor singing this beautiful opera. <laughs> like actually very well, you're a very talented singer. And uh, okay. uh you were, I, I think you were crying, like you were really feeling. I mean, I've never gotten much into opera, but opera is all about the emotion, right? I have to imagine. Well, I, I would think, you know, I never really studied it per se. My parents both pursued classical music in college. Um, so I was exposed to a lot of that stuff growing mm -hmm. up, a lot of opera and that kind of stuff. And I guess whatever I learned about singing was from a classical perspective early on. Um but yeah, you know, I don't know. My mom, I think I got that from my mom. My mom does did this hilarious thing where, you know, she she was like a classic classic woman of that time. She worked like 50 hours a week. She was also taking care of pretty much everything at home. Mm -hmm. I talked to you about how she was kind of the caretaker for our grandma for a long time. That's her mother, right? So she was always my yeah, so my mom was always going Always, 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 always. And then, like, randomly on a Saturday, Yentl or something would come on the TV, <laughs> and she would stop everything she was doing. Really? Just sit down, and she'd just, like, weep and watch Yentl for, like, two hours. And she would, like, lose herself in it. Oh, yeah, completely. It was like a like, like in the escape. middle of dusting yeah. the living room, you know what I mean? She's got her power headband on that she always put on when it was work time. <laughs> and, like, Yentl Babs would come on, and, and she... She cries at anything, right? Any, any, she's very empathetic, right? And I think movies and especially movies combined with music, uh -huh. right? Music really moves hits her. my emotions really easily. Mm -hmm. So music makes me cry a lot. But really, I'm a sap for just about any movie I will, if they have like a cryy thing when they manipulate us with the music and all of mm -hmm. that, which I'm fine with for story yeah. time. I'm not saying of course. A, a menacing manipulation, but um, what would you say is the hardest you ever cried in a movie? Can you think of that? Uh, I don't know. Prince you remember that is. Life is Beautiful? Uh, yeah. Oh, you really? know what? I've never seen it, but I remember it. It's for really sure. good. I cried a lot during yeah. that. Um, that's a, yeah, that's intense. You know, I think like all people and especially men in America, it took me a while to not restrain every time I mm -hmm. was crying. Um, Prince, so like I haven't like cried since 1984. I don't sob during movies, but I, I will is tear. It like, oh yeah. I just, have it running, just falls down your, running tears yeah. often. Yeah. Um, I remember you told me when you were a kid, one of the, one of your, I don't know, really nice memory for you is you're watching Lonesome Dove and spoiler alert, 
uh, Danny Glover dies. <laughs> uh, and you yeah. said that your dad comforted you when that happened. That well, was like really I, meaningful, I can, right? It's an early memory. I think it was it was pretty formative. Um, my dad had a lot of mental health issues and depression and stuff. Um, and especially in the early years, money was a tighter thing, mm-hmm. and my parents were always stressed and et cetera, like it, like a lot of parents and whatnot. But um, he was not particularly forthcoming with emotion um, and, and could be distant, mm-hmm. uh, especially when we were young. We're very close now. but Yeah. Uh, and so also I was probably too young to be watching the movie, but that's also a constant in my life. <clears throat> but Danny Glover gets – he's like trying to – I think if I remember correctly, there's like a young uh, indigenous kid who – who he's somehow trying to introduce himself to or something. So it's mm-hmm. like sort of a gentle moment. And then uh, either a parent or something else runs out and stabs him with a spear, right? And he dies. And it's mm-hmm. very sad. So I remember f- feeling all emotional, having some big feelings come up. And I left the room and went to cry in the bathroom. Oh, and my dad came and found me and like picked me up and hugged me. And it's oh. like, it's all good, you know, whatever. And so I do think that that probably had a lasting impact on, like, yeah. what, you know, is it okay to cry, et cetera. My dad was a lot of things, but he was not, like, toxically masculine, particularly. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like he never would have been like, don't cry, you know. Yeah. So, so that he, was a bonus. Uh, it's interesting you said I probably that's a constant in my life. I probably wasn't old enough to be watching it. I think that's probably gone in in a sense now because like Netflix kids, there's just 9 billion kids programs on now. And they have access to to everything. Right? Yeah. And then it was like, you sit down and whatever they're watching, you're watching. That's what you watch. That's, that's it. Lonesome Dove, one of my all time favorite books. And a fabulous movie. It's a, I've never seen it actually. Oh, you really should. It's I a, should. It's you know, there was a television show, uh, that Brett, that Brett, the Hitman Hart was in. That yeah. Brent, calm down. Um, but yeah he he left the WWE in uh, 2000 no excuse me 1996 to go film Lonesome Dove for like six months yeah and this has been the wrestling hour brought to you by fuck cigarettes that's fuck cigarettes okay all right so we we jumped around a little bit there Uh, you you, kind of give away something so I want to ask you uh, you said you lost some fingers Mm -hmm. now I haven't noticed that Um, tell us about it. So which fingers are you missing? I'm missing the index finger and middle finger of my left hand, but okay. n- pretty much 98% of them. I still have a little, you know, the knuckle is not gone, so yeah. I can wiggle the knuckle, but the whole finger is gone. Tell us, uh, how old were you when you lost him? 31. And tell it us. It was in December, so it was right, I was either 30 or 31. Are you saying your birthday's coming up? Uh, it is. As, as of this recording. Sorry, Brent. Um, So tell us what happened. Uh, Well, I was doing environmental uh, work for a ground – sorry, I was groundwater sampling for an environmental company. They were monitoring um, a jet fuel spill and where it was on the aquifer below Albuquerque. Wow. uh, You know, right? So Albuquerque is a desert, obviously, Mm -hmm. so the aquifer is super important. Uh, jet fuel had leaked at some time in the past and filtered down through the, the sandy earth and was now floating on top of the aquifer. So it oh, had all wow. these wells, sample wells drilled all over the place, in the city, on the Air Force Base. Uh, and so we would go out and pump certain volumes of water and take measurements and observations and whatever and then move on to another well. It's like a few-hour process per well. Mm-hmm. But we were requested to... Uh, sample a well we'd never sampled before, 
Um, and it turned out that it was a completely different type of well. It was not a sample well. It was actually like <clears throat> part of an agricultural thing for a golf course. It was like part of the... Um, it was on a golf course? Or yeah. it, it, it fed the, the water to the golf course? Well, both. Okay. Um, oh, I guess that's how wells work. Yeah, sometimes. Thank I mean, you. They, they pump them a long way, too. So yeah, that's true. It's not inconceivable. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be there. Well, but well, well. Anyway. Uh, so we got out to the thing. We had requested information. We thought we knew what we were doing. Long story short, uh, I went to access this sample port that was purportedly already installed, like a vinyl tube. Quarter What's inch, a sample port? Just a quarter-inch vinyl tube that would allow water to be pumped from the well out I see. to be collected. Okay. Um, and when we got there, I couldn't see it. There was kind of a mess of stuff on top, electrical cable. Uh, the sample tube, braided steel wire, right? Um, and so long story short, I lifted it out and it something down below disconnected, which shouldn't have disconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it released the support for 1,600 pounds of material that was suspended. 1,600 pounds? Yeah, correct. Suspended <gasps> underground. It's called a pitless adapter. What that means, I don't really know. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, it fell so fast that it cinched the braided steel cable around those two fingers and pulled me shoulder deep into the well casing. And then when, when I wouldn't fit anymore, it tore my fingers off, um, dislocated my thumb, broke my pinky, strained some ligaments in my How, arm. Um, so you get pulled down, like there's no choice. Correct. I have no choice. This it, 1600 was, it was immediate. Pounds. Yeah. It was less than a half a second from touching it to removing my hand and saying, I'm missing two fingers. We need to go to the hospital. Wow. Uh, you said, what'd you call it? A pitless adapter? Pitless adapter. Thanks. That's that's my jazz fusion band. Yeah. <laughs> we are pitless adapter. Now we're going to fuse. Okay. So you, it was really with like one second, like you fell down oh, and you pulled your hand back up and very apparent. Yeah. Well, it kind of ties into what I started to say earlier, which is that I uh, really, it's really has always been important to me to be in control of my faculties or whatever. Okay. So, it wasn't uh, – I didn't, like, freak out. I mean, I was definitely traumatically injured, so I'm sure I was in shock or whatever. But mm-hmm. but I was pretty much aware of what was going on. You know, there were some other people on the site with me. So I was like, we need to go to the hospital, call 911, et cetera. And it was about seven minutes. So it was on the Air Force Base. So mm-hmm. the ambulance came from off base and had to go through the checkpoint. So it was almost eight eight minutes or so, seven or eight minutes before wow. the ambulance got to me. Uh-huh. Um, and then they picked me up. Are you just, were hospital. you just like holding something on? Yeah, the, I don't remember what it was exactly. Yeah. I think it, I just had my hand over it, I think. Oh, and it was probably, it was December and it was probably chilly at least a little it was bit. It the 30s, I yeah, think, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so you get in the ambulance and then, wow. I, I remember I, I found out from your ex-sister-in-law about that. I, she didn't tell me what had happened. She said you'd had an accident and I was very worried. And when I finally talked to you and you told me what had happened, uh, and I confirmed, you know, like I, I was kind of shocked, right? And then I confirmed it was your left hand. And the first thing I thought of was when we lived together in West Virginia, you basically taught me how to play guitar. Yeah. And that made me really sad. So basically, what if you're listening at home, Aaron losing his fingers was a problem for me. <laughs> not not for Aaron. Well, I mean, it was a problem for me. It was? Yeah, I was, I was disappointed to lose them. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> Yeah, no, I had I wasn't like a super guitar player or anything, but I had played for a long time. I got my first guitar when I was thirteen. 
It very music again so it to, to drive it years or something. Very musical, very yeah, musical. Yeah. Well, what was m- nicest about it was even when I wasn't so singing was was my jam for a long time, and uh, guitar allowed me to express that at home alone, uh, and, right. s- and to still have that satisfaction of creating music even when I wasn't doing it professionally or 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 otherwise, you know, mm-hmm. in a group or. Um, so that was how long uh, were you kind of depressed by it? Like, oh sure, sure. I mean, I. Uh, I don't know. I think um, I gave you, I even asked you before we recorded, can I make fun of your lack of fingers? Mm-hmm. And you said no, and I just totally broke that. No, I'm just kidding. You said yes. But you've always, at least since I've, um, since it's happened, uh, you've always seemed to have had a really good um, out, uh, outlook on it. But how long were you like really down about it? Like, and what, what were you thinking? The first two months afterwards was a hard time for, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um I wasn't working. I had a lot of time. It was oh. it was extremely painful for for an even after that increase. you went to the hospital. Why was it painful? Well, there's some some nerve issues uh, at the end of the finger when it initially healed. Um, there was no so so when my fingers were torn off, um, it basically left uh, a circle of open area of bone and, and ligament and that kind of stuff. I don't want to gross oh, anybody yeah. out too much, but. Uh, when they stitched it up, they there wasn't enough skin to pull it, it totally closed, right? So, okay. the, so the scar tissue that filled in that gap, right? If you have the palm of your hand and the back of your hand, uh-huh. as that skin came together, it just had all the scar tissue that adhered directly to the bone. And so there was no padding. There was no anything. So it's just like very stiff, hard uh, tissue that attached directly to the bone. And normally you would have... I don't know the medical stuff, but there are, you know, multiple layers of skin and layers of fat and yeah. that kind of stuff that pad your, even the bony parts of you that you think are bony have things. Mm-hmm. Which is all of me. Yeah, you and me both. Yeah, kid. Uh, so they, yeah. So um, what were you thinking for those two? Like, was it just like, did you, this is, I'm not trying, this is certainly not making light of it, but like, did you think you were somehow deformed? Did you... You know, the, I was actually, as far as how it looked, was more a concern later because it probably took a full year or a year and a half before the tissue kind of regulated. So it was it was really swollen and bulbous for a so long time. So it was like you, it was like your knuckles. Like right. Obviously, this is you can't see, but you're right. You said ninety eight percent. Right. So my gone. knuckles are there. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, but the fingers themselves are gone, and so like those knuckles were super swollen. In pain the whole time? Painful. They used to be, so I had a lot of phantom pain in the first several years. I've heard that a lot, yeah. Um, Which is more like, for for me, it manifested as if if you've ever cut or bit your fingernail too short and you have that pain out. So I was feeling that pain out at the end where there was nothing. It was out in space. Wow. But I was getting that pain out in the ends of my fingers, like all the time for a while. And there's nothing you could do about that. Not really. I mean, they have some drugs and some therapies and things to help try to like confuse your brain or whatever, but um, it's <laughs> kind of like just luck of the draw for how long that sort of stuff lasts. Uh, we talked about this a little bit on the way in, but they, I probably dodged a huge bullet of pain by not being able to reattach the fingers because they went down in the hole. So they were yeah. down there gone. They found them later, right? Many weeks later. Yeah. yeah I bet them. they look good. I, they wouldn't let me see them though. I requested, they were afraid I was going to have some sort of. PTSD, or and, huh? and maybe I would have. Uh, I don't think I'd 
That's that's fair. I I don't think I'd want to see my fingers after they. I w- I was very curious to see them, but I don't know why Brent's laughing. Nobody, nobody wanted to. <laughs> nobody wanted me to see him, so that was disappointing. Brent, Brent's like, man, finally, fucking. Uh, okay, so um, but then you had a surgery of some sort, like yeah, how how far? Scar revision, and I had a neuroma, which is where your scar tissue or your your the end of the nerve that remained, the nerve that would go up your finger. Uh, the end of it ended up encased in scar tissue. So I had what they call an aroma, which is like a really sensitive uh, area where this the scar tissue is right on the surface and the nerve is in there. And so it's like the nerve is like right there. Oh, And it's also just like I think there must be something. I don't know any technical things about it, but, but, but a nerve that's never been stimulated there, right? Uh-huh. It's used to being stimulated out at like the tip of my right. finger or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all this like sensation that it's not used to having. So it's just like super duper sensitive. And then the, you know, when you lose a part of your body, your kinesthetic awareness takes time to adjust, right? So if I would reach for things with my left hand, I was often like punching it with my knuckles oh. because my index finger wasn't there to tell me, oh, you've reached, you've gone too far, you've reached whatever you were reaching yeah. for. And then it would hit that nerve. And it would hit the nerve, and that would hurt really bad, et cetera, et cetera. I was lucky to get a – I had a great hand surgeon uh, who did a good job with the scar revision. Mm -hmm. And that continued to improve for for several years after the surgery. I would like to say that I always want to call this out, things like this. And I believe that was the first time kinesthetic awareness was used on sad times. Not possibly. I've used it wrong, so don't get excited. I don't right or wrong. It's a it's quite a <laughs> quite a combination of words, my friend. So that was gosh, nine years ago now, right? December of 2013, I believe. Yeah. yeah. So actually, we just had oh my gosh, the ninth anniversary of Digitus Exodus Day has just <laughs> has just occurred. What is it? What day? I think I want to say it's the 13th. Digitus it Exodus be, might be the 11th. Yeah, Digitus <laughs> Exodus. My older brother dubbed it Digitus Exodus Day. Ah, uh, that's pretty funny. That's good. Yeah, your younger brother was working with you when that he happened, was. right? Yeah, he was there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so, um, and I think you said something earlier today too about how you've noticed. There's actually a lot of people you've noticed more that don't have a finger or missing a finger or something sure, yeah. like that. Once I had my finger injury, I started seeing it everywhere. And I, it's in my personality to not let that go. So now every time I see somebody with a finger injury, I'm like, finger buddies. And I show them my fingers and we have a chat. Almost really? Do you really them, do that? Yeah. Huh. Almost all of them have cut them off on a table saw or something like that. Ow, 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 ow. A circular saw, that kind of thing. Are you just, I mean... The body gets used to anything or most anything. Do you, are you just, just so used to it now? Just, I think, yeah, I crossed that threshold maybe a year or two ago. I mean, for, for years and years afterwards, I was always aware of it. Yeah. Not that it was really like making it hard to do anything, but it was just like, I thought about it a lot. It was like, oh, that's kind of weird looking that there's no fingers there. And then when I was working at the bank, you know, I was customer service, and then I did some managing and that kind of thing. So I was always opening accounts. I had a lot of long conversations with individuals, and it was the first time in my life I got to experience what it's like when people uh, stare at your whatever, yeah. right? And you can see their eyes going to it over and over and over and over again, right? And it's I, I would look, right? Yeah. It's different. It's totally normal in human nature to notice a difference like that. But I do think there comes a line where it's like if you just keep looking at it, it's like I'm I'm here. Yeah. Did you ever, did you ever say, 
like you noticed maybe somebody was looking at it that you said, oh, are you looking at my fingers or? No, you, no, I didn't bring it up, but I, but I was shocked at the number of people who asked about it. Mm. So what happened to your finger, right? Which didn't bother me until I had answered the question a thousand times. And then mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of over this. Yeah, thanks for coming on this podcast and let me ask you that. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a little different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, people, so you, people like the, I think they like the shock of it a little bit, right? Yeah. When you tell them that you got your fingers torn off by a braided steel cable, they're like, oh, we're, oh, they get... I don't know. It's human nature. And that's just the noises I make. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's different. And you're right. The eyes. uh, uh, Right. To notice it is completely normal. Right. It's like noticing somebody in a wheelchair. There's nothing wrong with noticing. Oh, sorry. But when you stare, that's different. Right. Right. Or if you act weird about it. Yeah. So let me, here's another question. How many years ago did you get tired of my joke about giving you a high eight? Oh. Well, I don't think I've ever gotten tired of that. Oh, that's good. I started talking about high threes pretty fast. I mean, again, it's in my personality to, to joke about it a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I my my outward expression of it was always pretty jovial. Um, and I still like to use that as a way to deal with it, though I think it was definitely a deflection from, mm-hmm. from more sadness and more That's how I use humor, for sure. Right? I mean, humor is a defense thing, so I latched onto that immediately with my fingers. Yeah. I think one of the first pictures I sent you was when I put my stumps up to my nostrils like I had put my fingers <laughs> all the way up <laughs> my nose. <laughs> and I was like, it's that time of year again. Aaron's always putting his fingers up his nose. All the way. All the <laughs> way so yeah i mean humor is a defense mechanism i think that's important and i think uh i i have a you know my uh my mother has a very 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 i mean dry as the sahara very dry sense of humor and it's usually very dark Mm. uh and and my humor tends i i believe in silliness i believe in silliness like uh, as much as i believe in kindness or anything but also humor uh, one of the best things about humor is you can take dark things and you mm. know well literally make light of yeah, it yeah you gotta you know not, own it, not literally yeah so to speak uh, so you um that's good audio right there. You, <laughs> you. Now for the breathing pause. <laughs> God damn it, Brent! Stop interrupting my show. Let me let me get another one of these out here. Um, all right. So you mentioned um, growing up. Mentioned your dad. Mm-hmm. You talked about. Uh, we've obviously talked about what happened with your fingers. You you've also struggled a lot with. Um, Kind of autoimmune stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when did that start, and what? What? How did it um, show itself, or whatever? Yeah. So my, I want to say it was my sophomore year of high school. I was probably fifteen. Started pooping a lot, a lot, and then before I knew it, I was pooping a lot of blood. And then I was like, "Hey, mom, this yeah. is kind of weird to tell you, but I seem to have a lot of blood in my poop." That's a scary thing. Yeah. Did it scare the shit out of you? Yeah, I was Not young. Pardon the pun, but you know, that's... and uh yeah, and it was it was really painful. I had all this cramping uh and like explain pain. what that cramp feels like. Is it um what I'm trying to say is um I've not I've been lucky enough I don't have that, but there are times where I feel like I have to go to the bathroom immediately. Is it that type of pain uh, well, or is it's it different? Like, it's like if somebody put glass in your large intestine. 
and you your body was like, there's something in here that I need to poop out. But you were like, if I poop this out, it's going to cause a lot of damage. Oh, my God. Uh, so it Jesus. feels like this horrible titan. It's, it's difficult to describe. Pain is so difficult to describe, right? Yeah. It's like when I lost my fingers, I described that as white. Bright white, all-encompassing white feeling my mind. How long after it actually happened that you start to feel it because of the shock? Oh, it was probably like a week. I mean, really, before I honestly had like a, a sensation from the area that you could okay. normalize. But back to the back to the poop to the gut problems. Um, so I had my first colonoscopy when I was sixteen, and back in wow. the day, the way they prepared you for that. Um, you went on a liquid diet for 48 hours, which is still what they do. But then they gave you all these weird stimulants. So you took like a bunch of stimulants, uh, like poop stimulants, like oh. a bunch of laxatives, mm -hmm. but like very, very stimulant laxatives, not like a gentle laxative. So it's right? like this you take like it and it's muscle spasming your, your colon, right? I had to give myself an enema when I was 16, which was weird. Um, and so that the, Preparation for that was much more traumatic than the the procedure itself. I don't really recall. Right, they knock. They don't you put out. you all the way out, but it's a it's enough under they, that. You're what do they call it? Float you or something? Yeah, something like yeah. that. Right? It's not like for not like when I had my hernia operations, they put you all the, all way, the way down. Yeah, it's less than that, but um, but just like horrible, horrible poops for two days. See, I had to drink castor oil. Literal castor oil? Literal castor oil. Let me tell you, you haven't ha lived until you've had a couple of tablespoons of castor oil. What do you think I just opened? <laughs> so, wow. And so you had your first, you said your first one when you were 16. Mm -hmm. I assume that means you've had further? Had, yeah, another one uh, in like 2014, uh, just to see where things were at. and get What, what did they find? Did they diagnose you with something once yeah, they so did so I they? have uh, what what now falls into the broader category of inflammatory bowel disease, but nobody was talking about that then. So it's ulcerative colitis, where I get, uh, unlike Crohn's, which is in the small intestine and, and generally worse, more likely yeah. to be deadly, um, I had these like lesions uh, in my large intestine. Were they like ulcers? Kind of, yeah. I think that's where the ulcerative yeah. part yeah. comes from. Um, and it's like I say, it's inflammatory. So it's an inflammatory condition. Some about, it's an autoimmune thing. Some about your body attacking your own cells and yeah. whatnot. Uh, inflammatory condition, by the way, is the name of my other jazz fusion band. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, I haven't told you that. I didn't want to. Spoiler. Yeah. So how did you? How did they treat that when you're 16? So they they go and they they see yeah, what this is. So you're still I mean, in pain, I imagine. Honestly, the colitis was probably one of the more formative things that ever happened to me. It's probably where I started first really being funny about my pain. Mm -hmm. uh, right. The poop I made is a funny. A lot of jokes about poop. <laughs> I mean, I was I had to I was pooping probably 10 to 15 times a day. Oh my for god! Most of the time I was in high school. Right, so everybody knew something was wrong because you're just getting up I was all the time, constantly and... in the bathroom, right? And so that's kind of weird on its own. And so I had, you know, faced with the choice of either trying to pretend like nothing's wrong or just laying full into it. So yeah. I talked about poop probably more than people cared to hear. Well, we were uh, the first show we were in that we were talking about earlier. There was the the scene that the first scene you and I were in <laughs> together, and um, you were uh, you were sitting on the ground and. 
in the scene it was like you just had to be doing something and i didn't know what you were doing for a while but you were carving into a rock every day we did that show probably 70 times or something um what did you carve into the rock poop is life yes well let that be a lesson all yes that's right that's right and then you had that in our house in richmond it was like on your window well that you know that yeah well poop is life i still have that rock in the basement somewhere Mm-hmm. But I think the colitis started some of my my deepest anxiety, right? Because I was always afraid I was going to need to poop at an inopportune time or poop my pants, right? Or like when I started in my professional acting career, I was yeah. like, "What if I have to poop really bad right before I go on stage?" Or when I poop in my when pants I met you that summer, like, like was that a big worry oh, yeah. for you? Yeah, it, I never had an on stage experience where I was like, "Oh my god, yeah. I'm about to poop in my pants," but I was always I was constantly worried. That I was going to have. That it's. Of I'm glad that you said that because that, of course, makes 100% perfect sense. And it's like I've had that experience like once a year, maybe, like where you're, oh my God, I need I to get to a bathroom. Yeah, pants, you know. But to have that as a daily. Well, and this is not just poop, right? I'm right. not trying to gross anybody out no, too it's much, fine. but it was foul yeah. beyond all measure. It's still, and yeah. And it, did it hurt to poop? Well, the, I, it was hard on my sphincter to be wiping my butt a thousand times a day, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so that was painful. Yeah. And then the cramps yeah. with the pooping, you know. You get the cramp. Uh, I know. This is, we're really we're going really down there. into the poop. Yeah, that's right. Do you get the cramps while pooping? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Before, during, after. I, thankfully, the cramps are less of an issue these days. But you still st- struggle with this oh, 20, yeah. 25 years later. Yeah, I know I'll, you're still I'll in your thirties. I'll have it my whole life. Yeah. Uh, well, you did take medicine for for a while, right? Well, so yeah. I mean, you kind of started to ask earlier. Early on, the early treatment was a drug called Asacol, uh, where I had to take four pills four times a day. Jesus, uh, are they big pills? Like they weren't super huge, and okay. I, I don't have any problem taking pills, so that mm-hmm. wasn't a problem. The problem was just that it didn't work, right? So I'd take the pills, and then I'd poop them out. I mean, stuff was going through me so fast. I had many identifiable items in my poop, right? I could tell what I'd been eating. I could see the medication I'd been taking. Stuff wasn't staying in my body. And when I graduated from high school, I was a little over 6'2". I weighed 135 pounds, right? So I was not digesting well. Uh, so, it, if so you, that was frustrating, and they tried to keep me on that for a long time, even though I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm just pooping these right out. And they're like, no, this is the good stuff. Yeah, what was the goal of those pills? Was that were they, uh, to Did they attack your immune system well, type of thing? They were, no, they're, so that's like a biologic, they call that nowadays. They were not a biologic. I, I'm not sure the mechanism that they were meant to work through. I wasn't paying attention at the time. I assume it was some sort of <laughs> inflammation blocker of some sort. Uh, and they still prescribe it. I think so. Mine was mine was moderate to severe. If you have mild or moderate to mild, they they still prescribe that for some people, and it works for for some folks. It just didn't work for me. Most successful drug I ever took was Humira. Okay, um, but that costs. You know, I wasn't paying it. Thank God, but it's like ten thousand dollars a month without insurance. Without insurance, ten thousand dollars. Ten thousand dollars. It's probably more now. Um, so it's wildly expensive. You got to give yourself injections. Yeah, how often do you have to do that? I think it's once a week. I like know, in I, I your only stomach took it for a year. Well, you have, you have to pick a few different locations because oh. you can't do it in the same place over and over. Well, again. no, I, we, we've all seen Rec Room uh, for a Dream. Yes, that's right. So I was, I had a rotation of left thigh, right thigh, left abdomen, right abdomen. Oh, it's like when I wore a um, 
just way, way easier. But when I wore a um, nicotine patch, mm. you had to move yeah, it around move your around. body. Yeah. Uh, you ever fall asleep with a nicotine patch on? I have never had a nicotine patch on. Well, let me tell you something, buddy. You want to have some fucked up dreams, <laughs> fall asleep with a nicotine patch that. on. It's like 32 dreams. And it was, woo, that was bad timing. Bad time. But help me quit smoking. Um, all right. And you, what, do you have any other autoimmune Issues? Well, I have asthma and I have eczema. How old were you when you first started having the asthma uh, issue? Well, I'm pretty sure I gave myself asthma or at least tipped the scales to that line between smoking uh, a lot of cannabis and then I smoked cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting Were they fuck cigarettes? started a little late. They probably were. Yeah. Uh, I started in my early 20s and then mm-hmm. smoked till I was like 26. I, I didn't smoke super long, maybe five years, four or five years. Uh, well, but by the time I was done with cigarettes and, and part of the impetus to quitting was was these horrible coughing fits I was getting. They were horrible. I, and I didn't know that what I was feeling was the inflammation of my lungs. I thought I had material to cough you, up. So you're still was, trying to... So I was trying to yeah. cough stuff up, but it, truly it was just inflammation. And I then just, I realized yeah. that I had essentially given myself asthma. So now I take an inhaled steroid daily and I haven't... Is it like as needed inhaled steroid? No, that's or? a daily medication to just keep things under control. And then I have a rescue inhaler, albuterol. Oh, okay. So I remember like when we would share a hotel room on tour, which we didn't do very many times, but I remember your coughing fits were horrible. Yeah. They were so... Man, it was sad to hear that because they were... Mm, Pretty bad. Yeah. I wasn't sleeping well. I was coughing all the time. <clears throat> and then the I... Colitis was out of control when I was on tour because I wasn't taking medication most of that time. And you never had an accident on... Right. Ah, there you go. Let's go back to that for a second. As a as a professional artist, which say what you will about Children's Theater, that's what we did. That was our job. Um, along with other stuff that we did, musicals and sure, Shakespeare sure. and stuff. But Waiting tables and all Yeah, that. are they... But, you know, it was just assumed no health insurance, right? And this is pre-Obamacare. Yeah. Um, no, there was just no option. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just didn't have it. I couldn't have... Now, I didn't have this $10,000 a month thing that you're talking about. Well, thankfully, I wasn't paying that. One of those... You know, I don't think it was... I think AstraZeneca is one of them now. Something like that where you can... Your insurance pays whatever or your no insurance... Mm-hmm. pays whatever like i had a copay but it was small and then they i don't know how they function or what funds them but they pay for the rest of it and it's basically income dependent you know you tell mm-hmm. them how much you make and they're like well we'll pay for this much of your medication and those things are still out there but they don't solve any of the long-term problems have you ever done therapy i have not uh i bring that up because uh that's another thing like most therapists only take very limited insurance mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, uh, just a surprise to everybody. I go to therapy hmm. and, uh, it's $200 a session because the insurance I have, uh, which I'm lucky enough to have does not cover it. Right. That's so, insane. um, okay. Well, I wanted to ask you then about that. So you had asthma, anything else? Eczema. Eczema. Yeah. And you have that in your ear. That's a recent goodie that life has given me. Yeah. Uh, I thought I had a cut in my ear uh-huh. that wouldn't heal forever, and now I know that it's eczema. So it gets real crusty and also uh, juicy. It's pretty fun. Juicy, crusty and juicy. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, like a good fried chicken. I love fried chicken. Mmm, <laughs> fried chicken. Get some fried chicken caught in my ear. Mm. Uh, so is it in pain? Are you in pain a lot? It, in your it ear? is when it's inflamed. I've been on a steroid, uh, like a 
an otic steroid, which like, this goes back to the. Human. Is that like a Norse? It's not a thing? medical condition I have that I don't make light of. So uh, you say an otic steroid? Otic, it's an otic solution. That's like a medical term. It means mm. in your ear. Uh, so I'm, I'm always asking my partner to otic me. <laughs> <laughs> you can put the drops in there. Can you otic me? And what is the answer? Usually, go away. No, it's sure if I have to. Yeah, if I must. <laughs> No, so, she's she's very nice about it. Yeah, I was there when uh, you were. At, those were antibiotic eardrops before when I was, was visiting. Before you. they had decided that but it was, it was eczema. eczema. Yeah, it was. Like, and there's really nothing you can do about it, huh? Other than manage no, eczema it? is one of those gifts that they they don't know a hundred percent why it shows up, and there is no cure. There are treatments, um, so it may go away sometime, or it may not. How is that different than um, psoriasis? Yes, psoriasis. Thank you. You don't know. I'm okay, not sure. uh, but it's also autoimmune. Okay. No, there's reason to believe a lot of those inflammatory conditions. Asthma is an inflammatory condition. Eczema is inflammatory. Colitis is inflammatory. I don't know all the science, but there's reason to believe that they are <clears throat> at least somewhat related. Some of the mechanisms that cause them are related, which is why, like Humira, which I took for my guts, is also prescribed for psoriasis. Mm -hmm. I knew somebody who took Humira so for psoriasis. I want to say it's called a TNF1 blocker, but that doesn't really mean anything to me. So, Fair. Uh, TNF one block. Something to do with the immune. The night fight one. That's exactly right. The mm -hmm. night fight one cell dispatches mm -hmm. to do something in your. Are body. you mocking yes. what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay, just making sure. Wait, is this a shtick or are you actually mocking? <laughs> I told you earlier, it's hard to say when the shtick ends. <laughs> That's when right. Life begins. I know. With, with you and I. <laughs> well, I want to ask you one more thing. You know, you talked about. Um, you mentioned growing up. Uh, we had that really nice memory where your dad found you in the bathroom mm -hmm. when you were really upset about uh, uh, Danny Glover and Lonesome Dove. Um, and you mentioned your mom. You said that your mom, not only was she working 50 hours a week, she was taking care of the house and looking after her mom. Mm -hmm. Now, why was she needing to look after her mom? Well, it was a combination of uh, my grandfather died before I was born, died of emphysema in 1980, and grandma lived alone after that. Was your mom an only child? No, she had a sister and a brother, but they lived in other states. Gotcha. So your mom was nearby? Nearby. Okay. Um, and grandma helped with a lot of the child care early on. Whenever we got sick, like that's where we'd go to stay because mm -hmm. both my parents worked or whatever. Um, so grandma was was definitely a help to the family. It's not like she was always some burden or something. Oh, you're right. Mm -hmm. uh, but my mom was primarily the caretaker kept her involved with us and the family. We, you know, she was at the house every weekend. We always picked her up for church mm -hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so she was always, always around. Um, and then as she, you know, aged, by the time she was in her seventies, she, um, probably, you know, started needing a little more help. She never drove, which is part of the reason my mom always had, to she never had a driver's never license, never ever had a driver's wow. license her whole life. Um, so mom took care of her a lot. Um, and then she ended up with pretty severe dementia, but not until her mid-80s. This is your grandmother? Yeah. Okay. And how, um, how, how, uh, how did that manifest? Well, at first it was just funny little things, right? She started eating weird stuff like uh, beans and cottage cheese or like and oh, beans. Wow. I mean like baked beans. Like, uh, just odd combos of things, uh -huh. right? You know, 
um, in her time, she'd always been a little forgetful and had some phrases that she said a lot, you know. Um, but but after a while, it started to be like every time you told her something, she'd tell you about how she read that in the paper, uh. which was obviously not true because not everything we were talking about was in the paper, mm-hmm. right? you mm-hmm. know. Uh, or we'd go places, go to a restaurant or something she'd never been to, and she'd be like, I remember coming here. This is a great place, right? And which was all pretty harmless, and she didn't have any – you know, she took care of herself until her early 80s, and then she was in assisted living for a long time. My parents added onto the house, and she lived in the house for mm-hmm. a long time, and then she died when she was about 92. Wow. Uh, but by the end, she didn't know who anybody was. And Even her daughter? Nobody. Yeah, I mean, she might have still been able to say my mom's name, but it's it's so hard to say with dementia. One of the things that makes dementia so painful is that uh, you're never <clears throat> it becomes all these things that you take for granted about communication and how you understand somebody uh-huh. no longer apply. And so you have to like catch yourself. Get, can you give me an example of that? Well, it, well, like like you and I have talked about, right? So my mom is like a very reinforcing kind of person, right? So she likes to so, so before she was struggling with Alzheimer's, she uh, when she interacted with individuals, it was usually in a way that, that built them up, not necessarily mm-hmm. being like, you're cool, but positive reinforcement via body language, yeah, um, generic phrases and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And so she still does that, right? Like you came out to the house, uh, and we, uh, and August, when was September. that? August. Yeah. My parents came over for dinner mm-hmm. and my mom's like, I really, I just love this guy. Right. And she's just as likely to say that about you as she is me you know what i mean and so um, i i want to stop you for one second so your mother is struggling with alzheimer's correct and she is how long has she been dealing with that six or seven years and does she know um so when i now i had met her a few times before uh obviously your brother's wedding and a couple other times um and when i saw her in like early september when i was out there um I don't, she doesn't know who you are? I would say no. I think she knows, I look a lot like my dad. Um, uh-huh. So there's familiarity there, I think. Uh-huh. Um, but no, she she can't identify me as an individual person. She wouldn't be able to tell you my name if you asked her. How long has that, how long has that been the case? Uh, three to four years, probably. So Hers came on pretty fast. She's a little young. She doesn't have early onset Alzheimer's, which is a very specific diagnosis. Um but she's a little earlier than, you know, she's a good 15 years ahead of my grandma with that kind of dementia. So she knows who my dad is as much as she can identify him as Bob. She knows his name still? She knows his name. Yeah. But, like, she can tell you anything about their life together or about what my my life personally right now. Or, like, she has no actual memories of anything. So I I know that this is start over. I know that this is something that a lot of people it's just a, a struggle with. Uh, what I mean by that is um, family members of loved ones who are going through this. Yeah, it's a big deal. And Alzheimer's, you know, it's our society continues to get older, right? So more yeah. and more and more people have family members dealing with those sort of things. Did you have a period where it really sunk in what was going on and like that? I, I hate this phrasing, but like, there's no t- 
turning back? Or? Uh, yeah, I think that's the hardest part about it, right, is the, the slow decline that everybody's aware of, uh, the inevitability of everything. So it's like if somebody gets hit by a bus and dies, they're dead, right? And mm-hmm. you can grieve and then move on as much as anybody ever moves on from the loss of a loved one, right? But when you have somebody who's dying slowly over a period of years, be it cancer or Alzheimer's or whatever, uh, and you, you're forced to watch the person that they were slowly go away, um, is, is the hardest part. Right. And so I had a moment where I, I think the, the grieving for me kind of came to a head in like 2019. Um, we had like a family get together, uh, a lot of the extended family together, had a nice time, whatever. But by the time I got home, it was very apparent to me that the woman I had known didn't exist anymore, was as good as dead, right? And so I had like a long sadness most of the rest of that year. It was just sad. Anytime I thought about my mom, I felt like I was going to cry. Anytime I thought about my dad being with my mom for the next however long, I started to cry. You know, it's like there's... All the losses that you experience with when somebody dies are there, except that they're made more painful because they go away one at a time and, and they take a long time. So you really get to suffer through the going away. Yeah. Um, and then you go through this phase where you resent the person for still being alive, right? You're not, it's not that I resent her for being alive, but I resent the situation mm-hmm. for her still being alive. And then you start to get to the point where you wish they would pass on, which is a weird place to be. Um, you know, so I, I think that that all happened for me that summer and fall of 2019, I think, ish. Okay. Um, and um, so it, it's it's as if you've gone... I think I, I really like the way that you describe that. Like <clears throat> you have to suffer through each part of it. Yeah. And, each death anew, right? Yeah. When somebody dies in a tragic way, that's obviously very hard, especially if they're young, mm-hmm. unexpected, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, terrible. You can't compare tragedies, but there is a special hell in watching somebody die slowly. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people have known cancer patients can relate to that sort of thing. Or, or like back in the day with AIDS, where it just really s- slowly killed a bunch of people. Yeah. Um, so watching people die slowly is hard. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I um, do you know the uh, Emily Dickinson quote? Hope is the thing with feathers. Yeah, I think I've told you this. I, I say grief is the thing with talons. It just it gets into you. And then those talons, it's, it's at least my experience with grief, which is very limited. Thankfully, um, it gets into you and then it, it's like those talons make new talons and those talons reach further. And then it's like, you're dealing with a problem and you're like, Oh my God, this is six degrees, not Kevin Bacon, but six degrees away from what's actually the grief. Well, but sure. it's all the way out here. Sure, because the the impact of that, right, and, and and Alzheimer's, for instance, right. Not only is it sad that my mom is slowly dying a mental death, um, but it's expensive, Ugh. right. So there's a pressure to that. Eventually, mm-hmm. she'll need. Thankfully, right now, my dad is still able to take care of her. But we're right at the edge of that. 
that's not going to be able to continue much longer. Yeah. So you have the pressure of impending financial collapse, essentially, right? I mean, even even people who have savings and assets and stuff, you know, assisted living in some places could be ten thousand dollars a month, right? Eight ten thousand dollars a month, mm-hmm. and uh, that will wipe you out rapidly. Yes, of course. You know? You've got the fact. I, I worry about my dad. My dad's healthy, mm-hmm. healthy-ish, right? And and he could could be living life for another 10 or 15 years and actually engaging in life. And the further this progresses, the less he can engage in life. And so I'm sad for him. Right. Do you he, ever talk to him about that at yeah, all? No, it's, yeah. it's been nice. Um, That's good. You know, he carries some, some guilt about what he might've done better earlier in his life and kind of, I think sees his caretaking of her as a penance in a way. Um, mm. she took care of him for a long time and now he's like, I'll be damned if I'm not going to take care of her. But also I'm sure that's hanging on maybe beyond what is necessary. Right. Yeah. You know, at some point it's okay to put people in assisted living. It's okay to, God, that's gotta be such to a move on, but that's a hard, you know, hard. another death, another yeah. little death. Yeah. Uh, man, that, and of all of the things in this world that are difficult, and there are many, that that's some of the that's that's very the way that you've described it, the way that I've seen you, um, you know, kind of deal with it over the years and go through it. That uh, it, it's incredibly sad, and I really appreciate you talking about that so openly. Um, but at this point, I'm tired of you. So well, that tracks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was tired one hour and 13 minutes, 17, 18 seconds ago. So, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Now, Aaron, thank you so much for being on and sharing all this stuff. And I know, yeah, it got a little, um, a bit, uh, gory, not gory, it's not gruesome. <laughs> I don't know. The poop part, explicit. poop part, we'll yes, explicit. a little explicit, but it, it's something that so many people go through that it's formative people don't know. Yeah. And uh, I've known you for 17 and a half years. I never once thought about what you said, which is I was afraid I'd be on stage and I would chip myself. And that's a terrible fucking feeling. Yeah. Or in line at the bank or driving home after work or whatever. Anywhere. Um, So I thank you for coming on. Glad to do it. Sharing those stories. Glad to do it. Um, And um, anything else you'd like to say that's not disparaging of me? Oh, well, uh, no, I think it, it would be cliche to say, but I think it's worth saying is that, um, especially when it comes to things like chronic illness or chronic pain, um, that stuff just has such a lasting impact in the way you do everything. And then when you're having a bad day or when you're having a good day or whatever, and it, it affects who you are as a person and you can see it happening sometimes and you can see it not happening sometimes. And I just would hope that anybody who experiences that sort of thing, long-term pain, chronic pain, uh, just find somebody you can talk to about it, yeah. friend or whatever, because it's, it's much easier when somebody else knows. Pain is lonely. And I think um, it's human nature to compare pain, even though we all know we shouldn't. Yeah. And I feel like when you're somebody who's experienced chronic pain, you almost always feel like nobody really knows mm-hmm. how you feel, right? And that's like, that's a really lonely feeling. And you feel exactly right. And even though millions of people go through it, it's not something that we're, you know, you're, you're in line at the 
grocery store. And well, it's hard to know about people, right? Yeah. It's not written on a sign. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of people living in chronic pain. Yeah. And that, uh, mind bending to even think about that. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I, I think what you're saying is like you having had people, friends, partners uh, that you can talk to about this, the way that you've dealt with it with humor and such has, has been a help for you, but it still doesn't take away the loneliness. No, it's sometimes. always going to be there. It's always there. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, thank you again, sir. I know um, some of this stuff isn't easy to talk about, but I really, 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 really appreciate you being on and, and sharing your story with us and, um, and for your, uh, 17 and a half years of uh, friendship. Okay. My pleasure. Yes. Well, has it been, though? Mostly. Uh, mostly, yes. <laughs> uh, well, I love you, buddy. Thanks for coming love on. You too. And uh, everybody else, uh, thanks for listening. Um, you know, as you listen to Aaron's story, I hope that this has made uh, or helped make some of you feel a little less lonely. And, uh, you know, as you're reflecting on, on all the stuff that Aaron was brave enough to tell us, just make sure to light up a fuck. Breathe it in and blow it out, and we'll see you next time on Sad Times. You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint.